Well, good morning to the rest of you. Um, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to 1 Samuel. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today we will be in 1 Samuel 13 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there is uh, one under the chair in front of you, and you'll find 1 Samuel 13 through 15 starting on page 234, although for reasons that will become clear a little bit later, we're actually going to start our reading at the end of the passage. So if you can find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 15 to begin, I would like to begin reading from verse 22 and to, to 23 to sort of set things up this morning. First Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 22 and 23. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that'll be on the left-hand column. Just look for the 22. You'll see where we are. This is the word of the Lord. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has re also rejected you from being king. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us ears to hear this morning? Would you show us kindness again, as you have so many times in our lives, and allow us to see the glory of Jesus? Allow us to see His beauty, which we have just sung about, and to be transformed into His likeness and His image that you would be pleased with our lives and that we would honor you in all that we say, think, and do. Amen. Joanna Eberhart and her husband moved to the idyllic town of Stepford, Connecticut. And it didn't take long for Joanna to notice that something was off of the women of that town. They were perfect, but too perfect. They delighted in nothing but cooking and cleaning and pleasing their husbands, but they were mindless and personalityless and convictionless. Joanna believed that the town's women of Stepford, Connecticut, were killed off by their husbands and replaced by robots. She tries to leave the town, but she's stopped by her husband, who replaces her with his own Stepford wife. Ira Levin's 1974 novel, The Stepford Wives, serves as a bit of a metaphor of what man has attempted to do, not so much with his wife, but with his God. You see, the Bible is God's Word. It is God's revelation of Himself to man. And in the Bible, we read really crazy things like, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's, Romans 14, 8. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, Isaiah 43, 1. And yet Sunday afternoon through Saturday evening, we hear different messages being preached. You do you. Be yourself. No one has the right to tell you who you are 
how you should live, who you should love. And, and, and we hear it so often, and it sounds so right. And thus, many attempts are being made this very day, and have been made for a very long time, to take this independent, free-thinking, inflexible God and to make Him something more, shall we say, suitable, more pleasing, more man-centered. It seems that we're trying to curate, curate our own sort of Stepford God. And this morning, we're going to come across a very important phrase in the Bible, God is not a man. It's a rather simple statement, but it is profoundly important to us understanding this passage and many of the complicated things that we read in this passage. Actually, it's critical for us understanding anything in the Bible, that God is not a man, nor was He created by man, but God sits above man. God is a person who believes himself to have the right to tell man what to do, how to live, and who to love. He believes himself to have this right to give commands and expect man to follow his commands and then to hold man accountable when he doesn't. So I guess the only question that remains today for you to answer is, well, does He? Does God have the right in your life to tell you what to do, how to live, who to love? And if so, what gives Him this right? I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that on your own, but this passage will help you. The main character that we will read is named Saul. He is a tall and handsome man, the king of Israel, the first king in Israel. And, and we'll see that Saul fails in his attempts to treat his God like a man. We will see how Saul tries to pay God off. We'll see how Paul tries to distract God with a little obedience over here so that he can hide a little disobedience over here. If I can get God happy with me over in this part of my life, then I don't have to worry about Him touching me in this part of my life. But Saul will learn that God is not a man he cannot and will not be manipulated or controlled. And in the process of trying, Saul loses the kingdom and nearly loses his own son. Though this text was written 2,500 years ago, I think you'll find a lot of similarities to Saul in your own life. And thus, this will serve as a bit of a warning that any attempt that we make to control and manipulate this God will not only be futile, but it will also end in our own harm. So, three chapters this morning. We will move rather quickly through the first two, and then we'll camp out and spend most of our time together in chapter 15. So, let's go back to chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I'm going to start reading at verse 8, so give me a moment or two to sort of set up the first seven verses of this chapter. Saul has been the king of Israel for a short period of time, a couple of years probably, and he gathers an army to himself, about 3,000 men, 2,000 of those men are staying with him in the town called Michmash. And a thousand of those men are actually under the command of Saul's own son, Jonathan. And they are stationed in the town of Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. Verse 3 tells us that Jonathan defeated the Philistine garrison that was in Saul's hometown. Now, you'll know if you've been with us for any amount of time, the, the Philistines are these long-standing enemies of God's people, Israel. 
So Jonathan destroys the Philistine garrison in Gibeah. Now that should sound familiar to you if you've been with us in 1 Samuel. Because back in chapter 10, after Saul had been anointed the king of Israel, the prophet priest Samuel tells him, now Saul, you need to go home to Gibeah. There's a garrison of the Philistines there in your hometown. And then Samuel tells him, well, you do what your hand finds to do. In other words, be the king. Protect God's people. Do something about the enemy. And then after you're done destroying the Philistine garrison, go down to the town of Gilgal. And Samuel says, wait for me there. After seven days, I'll come. I'll meet you there. Okay, so that's the background. That's chapter 10. And here we get to chapter 13. And we see that Jonathan is the one who takes out the Philistine garrison. Saul gets the credit, which no matter, he's the king. That's how these things work. And in verse 4, we see that Saul does go down to Gilgal just as Samuel had told him. But but of course, the Philistines aren't just going to let these Hebrew peasants get away with a military strike. So they muster up a huge army. I mean, terrifyingly huge army. And Saul's own army, these 3,000 people, they scatter. And they hide themselves in caves and holes and tombs and cisterns, anywhere a man can fit. And anyone who's left with Saul is rethinking his life choices. Let's pick up reading in verse 8. For Samuel 13, 8. He waited... Seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So, so Saul offers, uh, well, Saul waits seven days like he was supposed to, which is a good thing, but, but this army is... Is still there, and his own army is disbanding, and they're totally outnumbered. We're told that the Philistines are like the sand on the seashore, and then Saul's army is left to something like 600 people. So they're totally outnumbered and totally outgunned. We learn later in the chapter, so the Philistines have, uh, they have horsemen, and they have chariots, and they have this troops, but Israel, they're not even fighting with real weapons. They don't have swords. They got like pitchforks. And what's that thing you called this morning? A mattock. That's what they're fighting with, mattock. I don't know if anybody's fought with a mattock, but it doesn't sound like it would work. I don't even know what that is. But they're not, they're they're outnumbered, they're outgunned, and, and, and Saul knows he's doomed. But God's on his side. And it's, it's a bit like uh, the old reformer, John Knox, said, one man with God is in the majority. But Saul has forgotten this. Saul is desperate, and he forgets the history of Israel. In fact, Saul forgets the history of his own people. This, remember Gideon? God has done this before. God has used far less to destroy far bigger. And so Saul decides, I'll take matters into my own hands rather than wait for old Grandpa Sam. He offers burnt offerings himself. This was a disobedience to God's word because Samuel had told him, I'll come to you and I'll do the offerings. And you remember, Samuel is the priest of God. He speaks for God. And Saul decides, I'll take matters into my own hands. I got to do something. And wouldn't you know it, just as soon as he does, who shows up? (laughs) Ain't that the way of things? Let's pick up reading verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, 
you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel is never one to mince words. He tells the king of Israel, you're a fool. You didn't keep the commands of the Lord. And though this may seem a small thing, like eating a piece of forbidden fruit may seem a small thing, God does not make light of any sin. And so does neither, neither does Samuel. You remember from the previous chapter, back in chapter 12, the Lord, or Samuel said that if you, Israel, and your king, Saul, keep the command of God, then it will go well with you. But if you abandon the word of the Lord, you and your king do this, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. And so Saul learns his kingdom shall not continue. Saul will be replaced by a man after God's own heart. We love that phrase. But you know, that phrase actually has less to do with that man's heart for God and more to do with God's, man, God's heart for that man. Another man will rule in your place, and this will be a man of God's own choosing. Saul, you were the choice of the people, but this man will be the choice of God. Saul's done. It didn't take very long, but the story doesn't end there. This boy's about to get, like, done, done. The Philistines, of course, are still encamped at Michmash. Something's got to be done about them, because now we're, we're seeing that they're starting to send raids into the surrounding cities, doing Lord knows what in those towns. And so here we have Saul with his band of 600 men. And they're not really doing anything. Jonathan, Saul's son, he gets tired of sitting around. Now, I trust most of you have already read chapter 14 in preparation for today. But if you haven't read chapter 14, I would encourage you to go back and read it. Uh, we won't have time to read the whole chapter today. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights to give you sort of the gist as we're making our way to chapter 15. Saul's son Jonathan is one of the great characters in the Bible, and he seems to not be able to abide with the fact that the Philistines are garrisoned in the land that God had promised to Israel, and now they're sending these troops out into the surrounding towns. So he and his armor bearer plan a, a sneak attack. Dad's not doing anything about this. Let's go poke the bear. So they head out, just the two of them. And the author um, wants us to know some of the terrain. I think this sort of sets up the tension that's in this passage. For, for Jonathan and his armor bearer to get to the Philistines, they need to climb down a cliff, which is named Bozes, which means slippery. And they need to go into a valley where they, they, then they have to climb up another cliff, which is named called Senna, which means thorny. So this is a gutsy move. This is a rather dangerous thing, climbing down a cliff into a valley against an army who's at the top who could shoot you with bow and arrow or something. And then you have to climb back up through a thorny cliff. But Jonathan is a man of great faith. And he sees this not as a beef between warring nations over real estate. He sees this as a battle for the honor of the Lord. After all, it was Samuel, God spoke through Samuel to say to get rid of the Philistines in the land. And in verse 6, there's this great line. Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
So these two boys show up in the valley, and the Philistines see these guys, and they're sort of like, about time, come and get some. And that's all Jonathan needed. Climbs up the thorny cliff, and he makes short work of about 20 men. And this attack sends the whole encampment into a panic. And then the Lord worked and sent a great earthquake. And the Philistines are freaking out, wetting themselves, and fighting each other. And Saul, who's not involved in any of this, he sees this, all the commotion in the Philistine camp. And so he, he's planning to send his troops in to sort of clean up. But before he does that, he gets all holy for some reason, and he calls the priest to him. The, the priest in the Ark of the Covenant. For some reason, the Ark of the Covenant is there because apparently Saul didn't read chapter 4. That's not a very smart thing to do. So he calls for this priest, and, and, and the author wants us to know who this priest is. He, 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 he reminds us that this priest comes from the line of Eli. Now, you may remember from Eli, this is not a good thing. Eli's family had got cursed, remember, that they would be wiped out. I mean, this, is, this guy comes from the family of like Phineas, Ichabod, and so this priest starts to do his thing, and Saul gets impatient. I mean, this God stuff is taking too long. He got to strike while the iron's hot. So he sends in his army. And one, once they see that the Philistines are now on the run, all those Israelites who had been hiding in the holes and stuff, they come out to join in the battle. And verse 23 says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And Jonathan was right. The Lord will save by many or few because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people. The postscript of this battle is rather telling. Jonathan, remember, this battle was about the honor of the Lord. It's about obedience to God's word. But Saul, it seems that this battle was, it's about something different. It's seems that this is about his own honor. You can see this in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and listen to this, until I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. You see, this had become about Saul building his kingdom. I mean, after all, he had been told in the previous chapter that your kingdom, you are being removed from God's kingdom. It's being given to someone else. And so Saul might have seen it as an opportunity to redeem himself or if God's going to take my kingdom away, I'm going to have to build it myself. Who knows? He makes the people take an oath. Anyone who eats is cursed. And so then... Wouldn't you know it? They come into a forest literally dripping with honey. And they're famished. And no one touches the honey. They fear the curse. They fear Saul. But Jonathan, Saul's own son, hadn't heard his dad make this rash vow. So he takes his staff and he dips it in the honey and he eats the honey. And the Bible says his eyes widen. By the time the day is over, they had struck down the Philistines from that town of Michmash to a town called Aijalon, which I'm told is something like 20 miles away across uneven terrain in the Middle East. These boys would have been famished. So the men pounce on the Philistine spoil, and they eat the meat with, a, with the blood still in it, which is something that a Jewish person was not supposed to do, according to God's Word. So Saul builds an altar, has to clean up that mess. But, but this isn't over for Saul. They had chased the Philistines for 20 miles, but now it's time. We got we to gotta strike. He needs this victory. 
So he tells his tired army, we've got to finish them off tonight. While they're sleeping in their camp, we're going to send a raid. We're going to finish them off tonight. And so the old priest comes back and he says, well, maybe we should talk to God about this and see if God will give us the victory. But God doesn't answer. And Saul knows that there's something up if God doesn't answer. There's sin in the camp somewhere. Those of you who know your Bible, you remember from the book of Joshua. Remember Achan? There's sin in the camp. They can't move on until they deal with it. Well, that's what Saul's thinking. This situation must be the same. And so he starts to cast lots between the people and it finds out that the guilt of this sin is actually in his own household. It is with Jonathan. Because after all, it was Jonathan who ate the honey, took the curse. So Jonathan gives himself up. I will die, he says. And Saul, who had his honor to defend, his vengeance to win, his kingdom to build, condemns his own son to death for his own rash vow. But the people step in. And they're like, no way. And they ransom Jonathan. Saul's ambition to build his own kingdom nearly cost him the life of his own son. And so we'll see. Everything comes to a head in chapter 15. This is where we'll slow down a little. Let's pick up reading verse 1. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and vote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What do we do with something like this? God is telling a human king to kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkeys, puppies, kittens, everything. That is shocking. Disturbing even. God is commanding what we would call today a holy war against the Amalekites. Devote everything to destruction. So what do we do with this? I'll offer you an answer. It will be painfully brief, no doubt unsatisfactory for some. But if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them after. One of the answers we could give about what do we do with the slaughter of the Amalekites by the hand of a human king on the order of God. One answer is we, we step for it. Hashtag not my God. He wouldn't do that. So we change the meaning of the text. Or we change the author of the text. We can't do that. The Bible isn't so flexible. After all, as I said, God is independent. God is free. We humans do not sit in judgment over God to tell God what is right and what is wrong. We do not tell God how He should act. 
nor do we receive the parts of God that we rather like and reject the parts of Him that we just don't. If we did that, that would be to make God in our image. It would be to create a step for God. So we can't do that. But there it is. The passage still remains. What do we do? Here's my answer. Best I could do. We humble ourselves and we receive it. God is not a man. He is God. He is creator. We are creation. And God has every right to do with humans any way He chooses. And we humble ourselves and we trust that He is good and that He will not act out of accord with that goodness. And we recognize that God is merciful and God is just. And the mercy of God and the justice of God are not held in tension, but held in harmony. And though it is, it is helpful to recognize that this that we read here is not an act of ethnic cleansing, but ethic cleansing. This is about sin. You see, when God's people came into the land of promise, it was the Amalekites who attacked them when they were at their most vulnerable. And God worked and He saved His people, but God then issued a judgment against Amalek and the Amalekites. And for the next 300 years, God waited on that judgment. And yet for 300 years, they never turned to Yahweh in repentance and faith. God spoke to them through creation. God spoke to them through their conscience. God spoke to them through His witness through Israel, and yet they did not repent of their sin for 300 years. And what shocks us about these verses is the swift judgment of God. But what should shock us about this passage is the patient mercy of God. If we have issues with this text, it is simply because we do not take sin seriously enough. That sin is no small thing in God's eyes. If you want to know just how seriously God takes sin, you just need to look at the cross. Because God the Father sent His own sinless Son to the cross to pay for sin. God, who is the source of life, is good, and all who turn away from Him poison themselves and others. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus had to die, had to absorb the penalty of sin in our place in order to give us life. So we should read this passage humbly and soberly and remind ourselves that God is just. Hebrews says He is a consuming fire. He will not play fast and loose with sin ever. Pastor Matt Chandler puts it like this. I think it's helpful. Whenever we see a bridge fall, before we ask, why did God let the bridge fall, we should ask, why doesn't God let all bridges fall? Sin is abhorrent to one so pure. Judgment makes sense. Mercy is the scandal.
judgment makes sense. It's mercy. That's the scandal. So Saul attacks the Amalekites. Devotes everything to destruction. Right? Is that what he does? Not exactly. In verse 9, we read that he spares the king, Agag. Keeps the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. Keeps the wagyu cuts of beef. Keeps the lamb chops, all the stuff that was good. But all the stuff they didn't like, well, they devoted that to destruction. Let's pick up reading in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now, don't get hung up on this this bit about God regretting making Saul king over Israel. God's regret is not like our regret. When we regret something, it's because we did something that we wish we hadn't done, that if we had known then what we know now, we wouldn't have done the thing we did. But of course, God knows all things, past, present, future. God is in control of all things, past, present, and future. So when we read God regretting making Saul king, it's not because he's like, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's because the author wants us to know that God feels the painful effects of Saul's sin. And he grieves over Saul's sin. And so does Samuel. And so, and we're told that Samuel is angry, and he's up all night, and the first thing in the morning, he goes and he finds Saul, and some of the people tell Samuel that Saul's just come back from constructing a monument to himself. A monument? Devoting the Amalekites to destruction was a serious, sobering, grave thing. And Saul's making statues of himself like Joseph Stalin. Samuel shows up in Gilgal and Saul's like, Grandpa Sam, good to see you, man. Blessed be the Lord. I've kept the commandment of the Lord just like you told me. Samuel's like, oh, yeah? What's with the zoo? And notice Saul's response in verse 15. They did it. They kept the sheep and stuff. We were going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. After all. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, 
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction, but the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel had enough of this king and his excuses. He's running on a little sleep. He's probably a little tense. And he says, Saul, even though you are little in your own eyes, even though you think that your part in this is small, you're the king. You don't get to shift blame. And so Samuel calls him to task. And again, the king blames the people. It was the people that did it. Well, the first king of Israel sounds a whole lot like the first man, doesn't he? So I was like, the people made me sin. Adam's like, my wife made me sin. And this chapter ends on a really dramatic scene. Samuel tells Saul again that the kingdom will be taken from you. And so Samuel turns to leave Saul. And Saul, this is his last vestige of hope of clinging to the kingdom, to, to his kingship. And he grabs a hold of Samuel's robe and it tears. And Samuel announces, verse 28 and 29, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. No amount of sacrificing, no amount of whining, no amount of tears is going to change God's mind. He is not a man. He does not regret. He will not be manipulated. Saul is done. And then Samuel calls for Agag. And the Bible says the prophet hacked him into pieces, finishing the ugly job Saul was supposed to do. This chapter ends tragically with Samuel returning home to Ramah and Saul returning home to Gibeah. And the Bible says that Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death. He grieved him the rest of his days, as did the Lord. So what's the point? What do we learn about the character and nature of God? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, as I said, we'll end where we began. Go back up to verse 22 and 23. Let's read it once more. And this is what Samuel said to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Some of your Bibles may say witchcraft. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has also rejected you from being king. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Samuel's words let us in on a crucial insight into the human condition. It's quite possible to go through religious ceremony and to have a heart that is far from God. 
You remember the Lord Jesus spoke of the religious people in His day saying that they honor me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. You remember He spoke of them saying that you tithe off of little stuff, like herbs, spices. You give a tenth of your herb garden to the Lord, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Many men use adherence to God's rules as a mechanism to keep God away. I'll go to church, I'll give in the offering, I'll serve on a servant team, I'll abstain from alcohol. I'll use dang it and shoot and flippin' instead of the other words. I'll try and convince myself, my God, and other people that I'm a devoted Christian. I'm a person of note. But these things are not actually driven by a sincere love of God. Not driven by a gratitude for who He is and what He has done. They're not driven by a desire to draw near to God. They're actually driven by a desire for God to leave you alone. It's a hope that if I do good deeds, that maybe God won't bother me about this other stuff. The harder stuff. The change my life kind of stuff. The inside stuff. Like forgiving that person that wronged me. Avoiding them is just so much easier. Bitterness, after all, is invisible. I can hide it. I can put on a face. I can do the outside stuff. I can speak Christianese. And my God won't talk to me about my arrogance, my self-righteousness. We think that pride can be hidden, and all the while we're wasting away in self-righteousness. Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Half obedience, rebellion. He says it's the sin of divination. It's the sin of witchcraft. So the pagan nations would bring their fruits and their vegetables to a statue representing their God, cutting themselves and such as to appease this God so that this God will do the things for them that they want and He won't do any of the things for them that they don't want. It's presumption. It's idolatry. It puts me in the driver's seat over my God. It's telling my God what I want from Him puts me in control. Religion is man's attempt to control God, to manipulate God. It is a church person's way of making their own Stepford God. Half obedience is full disobedience. And what does God require of us? What does God deserve from us? Well, for the answer to that, we only need to look to the Lord Jesus, who said that God is everything, and God deserves everything. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Anything less is unworthy of God. Where does that leave us? Well, I'll be honest with you, friends, that leaves us in a really bad way. Ask yourself, have you ever loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind? Or have you, like me, always tried to keep back a little bit of disobedience trying to hide a little bit of your life from God and from others. 
That's terrible news. Because we have a God who deserves and who commands full obedience. No exceptions. That's terrible news. But that's not the only news. There is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that what we didn't do right, Jesus did for us. That everything we did wrong, Jesus paid for us. That when a sinner turns to Jesus in faith, their partial obedience gets swallowed up in His full obedience. His life and death and resurrection have secured your forgiveness and your righteousness. So you can just go do whatever you want then. You don't have to worry about obeying God's command at all. Right? Actually, it's just the opposite. Our obedience matters even more because of the gospel. It means that we don't have to manipulate God for His favor. We already have His favor in Christ. That we don't have to use our good deeds in order to be honored. We've already been honored in Christ. We're free to go to church, to give in the offering, to serve on teams, to abstain from sin. Not because we want to earn God's love, but because we already have God's love in Christ. Romans chapter 1, the first paragraph in that great letter says that the grace of God in Christ Jesus was to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among the nations. We obey not because we want to get something from God. We obey because of everything that we've already got from God. Obedience for the Christian isn't based on have-tos from a place of need. Obedience for a Christian comes from joy, from a place of abundance. Remember who God is. Remember what He has done. And obey His Word with everything you are. You're free to do this, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing Him in every good work, bearing fruit for His glory.